Well, greetings, Shawnee. We're glad to be with you. Uh, thankful that you have taken the chance just to tune in and watch this as we go through a little bit of encouragement together. And I think the longer this goes on, the more weeks that uh, pass as we go through this, we're, we're all starting to feel the drain and the pull of this, that this is, this is disorienting. It's uncomfortable. We miss being together as the church. Know that, that we miss you. We're praying for you, praying with you. Um, it's not just the physical gathering of the church that's been disrupted. So much of our lives are, are just different than normal, and it's, it is uncomfortable. And so know that God is with you as his child. If you are a Christian, God loves you. He is with you. He's coming near to you even in this. And if you're far from God right now, know that, that he uh, may very well be at work in your life just to get a hold of your uh, heart, to get a hold of your attention, to help you know and understand the hope of the gospel uh, as he would love uh, to make himself known during this time. Church, we miss you. Thank you for the work that you're doing to care for one another during this time. Just encourage you to continue to reach out to one another, uh, check in on each other, see how needs are. It's wonderful that God has put the church together at a time like this where we have different needs, different abilities, different friends and relationships within the church that we're able to uh, connect with different circles and relationships in the church. So please continue to reach out. And inevitably, as you do that, as the body cares for one another, you'll, you'll hear and know of needs that are represented in the body. And don't hesitate to pass those on to the church office. We want to make sure that the body is cared for well during this time. And so we thank you for doing your part as the church. Um, you'll see included in this email there's information on how to give whether that's online or mailing checks into the church and thank you uh, as many of you have been taking the work to figure out how to give online or mailing your checks in we do very much appreciate your support of the Lord's work and just continuing to worship in giving by uh, giving back a portion to God of what is already his so thank you so much for your support of that and you can find the details on how to do that in the email below. Uh, if you're watching this on Sunday, this is April the 5th. It's Passion Week, the start of Passion Week. And this is what is traditionally known as Palm Sunday. And uh, it's uh, especially there's a little bit of us that pulls that, oh, man, this is the time of year we would love to be together. But thankfully, though church gatherings are canceled and not happening, Easter, the resurrection, the empty tomb has not been canceled, and so we want to celebrate that. The passage we're in today is going to give extra attention to the events of the final week of Christ's life. One of the things we want to do and challenge the, the children in our congregation with, so whether you're wired, Awana age, whatever it might be, uh, we're going to have a Passion Week Lego challenge. So I asked my kids to help us with this, and Reed and Ivy put together uh, two little Lego representations. This one's obviously Golgotha and the crucifixion, and Reed wanted it to be black because the event was so dark and the sky turned dark, and you can't quite see in the video, but the earth is all crumbled and cracked from the earthquake. So this is Golgotha. Ivy put together the fig tree that we're going to look at today when, when Jesus cursed the fig tree, and I don't know that there's ever been a better Lego representation of a fig tree in the history of humanity. <laughs> but children, this is your, your Passion Week Lego challenge. So what we want to see from you in, in the week uh, ahead, between now and Easter, take one of the events of the Passion Week. There'd be many things you could do, from the triumphal entry to the cleansing of the temple, the cursing of the fig tree, uh, the Passover Last Supper meal. Um, the events of the crucifixion, the empty tomb. If you wanted, you could even go beyond that week to something like the ascension or Christ uh, meeting with the disciples when Christ appeared before his disciples in the gathered room. 
Take one of those events, build the scene out of Legos. There's no age limit on this, even though I mentioned Wired and Iwana. Some of the <laughs> teens, some of the bored moms and dads might want to get involved, but take those pictures, send us a picture with the description. You could reply to this email would be one of the simplest ways to do it. Uh, but, but show us your Lego creations of Passion Week. That's our challenge for you as, as the kids. We'd love to be able to show the church some of the pictures that you put together in that. Yeah, and something else that we wanted to make sure that we put in front of you is our daily breads have come in for the larger print. I know that a lot of you take advantage of getting these. Um, uh, Pastor Aaron and I would love to actually drop some of these off to those of you who may want these. This is April through June's uh, edition. So if you are um, wanting one of these, please respond to this email. Say, hey, I want to be on that list, and Pastor Aaron and I will drop them off at your house. Now, don't worry. We will properly social distance, most likely we'll drop them in the mailbox um, if possible, but make sure that we're out in the driveway or something like that. We'll wave hi, you wave hi, we'll drop it off, we'll leave. You have the package, you've got the daily bread, it's in larger print for you, but make sure you respond to this email, let us know you want to be put on that list, and we'll make sure that this next week we'll, we'll drive by our house. All right, let's take a few minutes here. We'll transition. We wanted to do something different this week. Um, rather than one of us do a, uh, a recorded sermon of preaching like we've been doing, together we want to have a conversation around Mark chapter 11. So if you want to get your Bibles and go to Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 21. And Kevin and I are just going to kind of talk back and forth about some of the things in this passage since it is Palm Sunday. Uh, we're not looking actually at the events of the triumphal entry, but we're looking at the next day, what would have been Monday as Passion Week, and the events surrounding the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple. And uh, I hope it's an encouragement, something different, a change of pace. We want to, Kevin and I, talk back and forth about the passage and bring you in on some of the things that we learned, some of the things that were encouraging to us, and what applies to us as a church as uh, through what we can learn even in this passage. So Mark chapter 11, 12 through 21. I'm gonna read the passage. If you would like at home to pause the video and have somebody else read these verses, that would certainly be appropriate. But Mark chapter 11, 12 through 21. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. For he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look! The fig tree that you cursed has withered. This is the word of the Lord. Let's just spend a moment in prayer before we jump into the passage. Father, we come to you and we're grateful for Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and you're recording these events to us in your word. I pray that you would open your word to our hearts. Help us to understand what's taking place 
in this passage. We ask that you would bring encouragement and conviction, instruction, and hope, Father, from this passage. Help us in these moments, we ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, Kevin, why don't you just take a minute, bring us into the book of Mark, uh, and help us understand where we're at, even since we've been in the Sermon on the Mount for the past several months. Right, so in being in the Sermon on the Mount, obviously we're going to be taking kind of a, we're going forward a whole bunch here, so it's a kind of a hard turn in some ways, but um, just before this passage, the verses um, 1 through 11, we read verses 12 uh, through 21, but in verses 1 through the 11, your Bible might have it titled the triumphal entry. This is when Jesus comes down from Bethany and he's coming on a donkey um, and he starts to make his entrance there and they put cloaks down. They um, put everything that basically would be worshipful as a coming king would be coming into Jerusalem, right? And so we have this understanding that, um, at least through this passage here, that as Jesus is coming as king, um, that those who are, who are his followers, those who are his disciples, would now come to worship him, right? And so um, as we go into this um, passage, this just happened the day before. So we, we, we're looking at verses 12 through 21, which is the next day after the triumphal entry has just happened. But we also have um, in this time and all around, this is Passover, right? People are coming from all over, Jews especially, are coming from all over from distances just to what? Come to the temple to offer their sacrifices, to remember um, what had happened, how they were rescued out of slavery and brought through the Red Sea and uh, into the land, the promised land. And so you've got all these people uh, kind of commiserating, coming together at least to worship. And, and the temple is, is the main place. It's the hub. It's where the Jewish culture um, would kind of wrap their, their hearts and their lives around from worship to just uh, general um, dealings. So that's what the context is. Um, this would be the next day. Jesus had just been there the night before. He arrived late in the day, quickly saw it, was in the temple, and then left um, going back to Bethany. Now he's coming back once more. This is that next day. So that's kind of the, the context. It, it, it's helpful to be reminded that we're so close to Passover. I think it's hard for us as non-Jewish people to wrap our minds around the, the heightened emotion uh, around that holiday and just what for Jews would have combined um, all of the nationalistic hopes and dreams, certainly uh, a lot of the rituals and traditions that would be associated with any holiday, but th this was certainly a very heightened, regardless of the Messiah being here, for everyone throughout Israel, this was, this was a heightened emotional week. It was a very special week. They would have been paying attention to everything that happened mm -hmm. uh, and, and a, lot, a lot of exciting stuff taking place. So let, let's jump into the passage, try to start unpacking a little bit of w what's taking place, even in the verses that you just heard me read. You've got uh, the, the fig tree that Jesus and his disciples see, and then you've got the, the cleansing of the temple, and then in the last two verses, they come back the next morning morning and see the fig tree withered. So let's try to unpack a little bit of that by focusing on the fig tree, what's taking place. Let me read again uh, in verses 12 through 14. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see it if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, so, Kevin, this is one of those real interesting parts of Scripture 
um, that at first glance when you read it, you, you wonder, what, well, what's going on here? Why does Jesus, why does he have it in for this fig tree? Did he wake up on the wrong side of the bed? Did he, um, Mark even notes for us, he, he puts in this parentheses and he says, by the way, it's not the season for figs. He tells everybody that, that Jesus, in going to this tree, more than likely would have known and understood that even though it was in leaf, it was in full leafy season, um, you're still at least a couple of months away from the typical time when there would have been figs on the tree. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's led some people to, to, to uh, those that wouldn't take a high view of Scripture and choose pick and choose which parts of Scripture we can trust. There are some that look at this and say, see, this can't be a reliable historical event. Certainly someone added it. Uh, and in fact, uh, is Jesus throwing a temper tantrum here? Uh, exactly what is taking place? This is the only recorded instance that we have in the Gospels of a destructive miracle by Jesus. You know, Jesus is the one who uh, brings life out of death. He's the one who turns the water into wine. You would expect maybe that if he was going to do a miracle, he would take a fruitless fig tree and instantly it'd be covered with figs. Right, make it bear fruit. Here, he goes to a fig tree, not in season. It shouldn't have figs on it. Because he doesn't have figs on it, he curses it, and the next day the disciples show up and it's withered. So what's taking place here? Um, uh, One of the things that really helps us understand is the context of where we find it in the book. And Mark does this throughout his gospel, where he will uh, sandwich a story with another story. And it's exactly what takes place in 12 through 14. There's this story of the fig tree. In the middle is the story of the cleansing of the temple, and then in verse 20, Jesus comes back to the story of the fig tree, or Mark brings us back to the story of the fig tree. And and when Mark does this, uh, the two stories are meant to interpret one another. They're, They're meant to help us understand the point of each. And so just as the, the, the story of the temple is going to show this destruction and cursing, in the same way, the, the people were supposed to get and recognize that the fig tree was a parable, if you will, for what was about to take place in the temple. And instead of just telling the parable of the fig tree, Jesus enacts it. He shows it to them. Uh, the, Jew, the Jews would have understood that the fig tree represented national Israel. It, it was one of the common metaphors or images in the Old Testament for God's people. The fig tree and the vine were two very popular plant metaphors that they would have understood that that represented Israel. You could go to uh, both the minor prophets and the major prophets, Hosea, Micah, Joel. There would be other places where you see Israel represented as a fig tree. And though they were supposed to be God's chosen people, they were supposed to bear fruit. Here now the king has come, and he has come to his own, and they are not bearing fruit. And just as this fig tree bears no fruit, and there was a message of destruction, so too we'll see the events that are unfolded Mm -hmm. in uh, the cleansing of the temple help us to see that that God is bringing a a message of judgment for for these faithless people who failed to bear fruit just as this fig tree did not bear fruit and so too there was destruction. So so once we understand that about the fig tree, then that helps us understand just a little bit more about what's taking place 
in the temple. So I think that's what we want to unpack a little bit next. In verses 15 and 16, you'll see that Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He enters into the temple, and he begins to drive out those who sold, those who bought in the temple. He's overturning tables. You, when, when we get descriptions of this passage from other gospels, you'll see John tells us there was a whip of cords, um, that there's animals being driven out. All, uh, there, there's, there's a lot of force. Uh, um, the, the word here is the same word that's used of exorcisms, and so there's, there's a lot of significant things taking place. And there's a few things that, that Jesus points to in particular, and Kevin, maybe you can walk us through some of these things, but uh, there's, there's the driving out, there's the, there's the money changers, mm. there's the pigeons, there's people not allowed to carry things. There's a, 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 what exactly is happening in these instances and scenarios? Why are the money changers mentioned and uh, people carrying things through the temples? What's taking place? Right, I think that the picture you have there, and I think all the, the various um, gospels and how they describe it in different ways, it just seems like there's a lot of commotion, that it's a very, very busy place. Um, that as they um, came into the temple, and specifically where Jesus came, um, is where primarily it was the courts of where the Gentiles would be, right? This is where, this is the furthest place which the Gentiles could actually go into the temple, right? And that they could offer their sacrifices. Oftentimes, when those who were coming from afar, they didn't want to risk the um, potential of bringing their own. Certainly some did bring their own sacrifices. But they didn't want to risk the potential that if they had a dove or if they had or what would be known as a pigeon here in this, a turtle dove or dove or pigeon, um, I think they're all describing the same thing there. If they had something like that, they didn't want it to like break its foot or there would be some kind of imperfection in it when they would offer their sacrifice. So they're coming into a temple and in the temple um, where this is a place where the Gentiles should be saying, hey, it's a place where I could be having worship. This is a place that I'm allowed to come as a non-Jew um, and be here. Well, now it's just all this going on. As you, you you've got whips, you've got um, all of the, you've the money changers, the buyers, uh, the sellers. And what does Jesus do? He actually confronts like everybody: mm. the buyers, the sellers, and the money changers. So everyone here is confronted, and something is off. Everybody right now is on the on the wrong trajectory. If this is a place of worship right now. You're, you're changing what that environment should be. And so that if you walked in, you would never have known that it was that. You might think it was something um, like a bazaar or like, I think one of the commentators put it as a stockyard. You've got animals everywhere. Yes, this was a place you could get them. Yes, it was good that you could travel from afar and do that. But now they're in the places where the Gentiles would actually have their sacrifice and offer their worship to God. And it just, it's crazy. It's livestock everywhere. And it's kind of a it's kind of interesting, but I think that some of the, uh, the phrases that are being used here um, where Jesus addresses this. So you have that scenario, but then Jesus addresses it and specifically says some things. Um, in verse 16 and 17, he says, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Well, I think that um, specifically in that scenario, what, what are they doing? Well, they're just kind of walking through haphazardly through mm-hmm. this area, which is supposed to be designated as an area of worship. Mm-hmm. So you're having people come, not only do you have livestock going in and out, it's not like the livestock are going to stay still, right? They're going to have their certain area in which they're going to be sold in and moving around. But people are just haphazardly carrying things, vessels across, whatever it might be, just kind of ho-hum, here we go. Hey, Timmy over there, hey, and they're just going and and traversing back and forth. It's it's easy to forgive because of the the massive size of the temple complex in the heart of the city. 
it, it was an easy shortcut through town. Uh, right. I've got this load I need to carry. Um, sure, I'll just cut through the middle of the temple and it only adds to the commotion and chaos of what's taking place. Right. Oh, absolutely. And so, well, Jesus sees that. He sees you're walking through a place where people are supposed to be offering worship. In essence, a holy place. It wasn't the Holy of Holies, nor even the inner courts or anything like that nature. But it it was the place um, by which God had decreed that you set this place aside for Gentiles to offer their worship. And it wasn't just the Gentiles. If you were a leper who had been cleansed, this was the place that you would go to offer your worship. Um, if, you were, if you were a woman who just had a baby, this was the place that you were allowed to come and your heart could be poured out to God mm. through your sacrifice and your offering. And you've got people just walking through there. Yep. It's a God-designated place of worship for people, and people are just walking in and through there. And so what does he do in verse um, uh, 17? He says this, And he was teaching them and saying to them, it is, not, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? but you have made it a den of robbers. So uh, I'll take the first part of that. So that first part is coming from Isaiah, and I think that we should uh, turn there just to look at what he's quoting. Is, is, my house, uh, my, is not my house uh, to be called a house um, of prayer? So he's quoting from Isaiah 56, 7, but I want to pr- kind of set the context, I guess, of Isaiah 56 there. Um, Isaiah, as, as a prophet right now, is saying, in, in essence, he's prophesying what it should be, what God desires now in the future, that the foreigners, those who are not Israelites, those who are not of the nation of God's chosen people, even they, God wanted to be included because of Israel. They should be a light to the nations. This is him saying, this is how I want them to be drawn in. They even have a place uh, at the table, if you will, in the sense that they can offer something to me and I would consider it worship. And so in uh, Isaiah 56, um, we'll get to where he, uh, in 56.7, where he actually says it, but in 56.3, it starts out this, just to set up the context. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. He's saying, don't, don't think that way. Don't, don't think that as you come in, I, I'm separate in regard to how uh, the God I'm worshiping, okay? He's saying, don't do that. Move on down to verse 6. He says, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these, in verse 7 now, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. In verse 8, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet, yet others to him besides those already gathered. Mm-hmm. He's saying, yes, Israel has a place. Yes, um, they are my chosen people who are going to offer me sacrifices and be holy unto themselves because because God's name is on them, okay? But he's saying, even in that, I I provide a place for these foreigners. Mm -hmm. I provide a place for them to actually offer and come to me, the God of the Jews, but also the God of those who are foreigners, who are not Mm -hmm. Israel. And he's he's quoting this saying, right now, the place you have set aside, I and my heart have set aside, um, and and, and where you're offering sacrifices and where you're mucking up, with all of your traversing, with all of your traffic, with all of your buying, your selling, your money changing, which did need to be done, but you're doing that in a place that I've set aside as holy unto other peoples to worship me. And now this place doesn't look anything like its intense 
Um, and in turn, Israel was not allowing for that to happen. The Jews were not allowing for that to happen, for the Gentiles to easily be brought in, yeah. for them to feel like this was a place that they could yeah. actually offer sacrifices. It sounds to me, or it looks to me, that the, the picture painted here, it was a place where you had to kind of work your way around animals, yeah. around junk, not bump into the person carrying some water over to this other guy, feeding their animals, and eventually get to a place where you can offer your, your sacrifice. So that's what we're seeing kind of in that picture right there. And so he was, Jesus rightly so, was like, my house shall be called house of prayer for all nations. Why don't you get that? Yeah. This was my place where I could be a light to the nations, not just to yeah. uh, Israel. And you think of how discouraging that would have been for a Gentile, someone from the nations, to want to come close to God mm -hmm. and to enter into the court of the Gentiles and find a chaotic flea market. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was as close as they could get to God. So Jesus keys in on that. And then not only that, but he also says, but you have made it a den of robbers. So I, I want to take a second and think, well, what is Jesus referring to when he talks about the temple being a den of robbers? Mm -hmm. Um, who's the ones doing the robbing and who is being robbed? I think in my initial understanding of the passage, before I dug into it, it's very easy or a lot of our knee-jerk reaction or a quick interpretation would be to say, well, certainly the religious leaders were very corrupt in the way they were changing money, in the types of animals. There was extortion going on. There may have been some of that, uh, and there are those that interpret it that way. Um, the money changers in particular, you have travelers coming in with all kinds of different currencies, and the temple tax that needed to be paid annually was uh, needed to be paid in the form of a Tyrian shekel, T-Y-R-I-A-N, a Tyrian shekel. So you people would be able to bring their foreign currencies, they'd be able to get that Tyrian shekel, they'd be able to pay their temple tax, and so maybe some of that was being done in an unjust way, and, and yet I think <clears throat> when we rightly understand it, there's more at work here, that this isn't just a financial extortion. It's not that the religious leaders were robbing the people who wanted to be able to worship God through their sacrifices. I think there's something deeper uh, at work here where God himself is the one being robbed by the people in the way they had uh, set up this false worship. Just as the house of all nations, Jesus is quoting Isaiah 56, when Jesus says that you have made it a den of robbers, um, he's quoting here or alluding to the book of Jeremiah. And so I want to read just a few verses from Jeremiah chapter 7. Um, and to set the context here, this isn't the first time that that phrase, a den of robbers, has been prophetically spoken by God in judgment on the practices taking place in the temple. In Jeremiah chapter 7, uh, the nation is far from God. They're, they're involved in idolatry. They're involved in immorality. They are uh, living as evil as they can, and yet they're at the same time trying to come near to God in the temple. The, 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 they're coming to worship and thinking in a superstitious way that somehow their involvement in the temple is going to cause God to look favorably upon them, that, that somehow their involvement in the temple was a good luck charm that would somehow wipe away their evil um, acts and uh, the evil way they were living before God. And so Jeremiah strongly warns them. He says in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 8, he says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. 
Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal? Now, by the way, church, as you read that, don't quickly think, good, I've never uh, murdered anyone. I've never committed adultery. Remember how Jesus just defined those in the Sermon on the Mount. Coming back to, okay, coming back to Jeremiah's judgment for the people. Is this the way you're going to live and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. The first time this phrase, den of robbers, comes up in scripture here in Jeremiah, Jesus is not saying that there was some uh, financial transaction taking place where the poor were being robbed by the religious elite and the powerful. Jesus, the, the first time this passage comes up, uh, God himself says, I'm the one being robbed. Y you people are using the temple as a way to rob me. You, you are trying to get what I can offer without the personal relationship of living rightly with God and living rightly for God. If you think of a, a band of robbers, thieves, outlaws, uh, picture some of the old tales of the West, right? Where was the den? It was their hideout. It was their place of safety. It was mm -hmm. refuge where they could go live. Uh, they could commit their evil wild deeds and then they could make it back to the den for safety. And I think that's part of Jesus' point, is, is now the Jewish people had so corrupted the system that, that they didn't want the relationship with God. They just wanted the things God could provide through this superstitious belief that their involvement in temple sacrifices, that, that somehow that would check the box and God would be pleased with them. And so they were using the temple as a den. It was their hideout. It was a, it was a way to get safety and refuge. And Jesus will have none of it. And so he, he is flipping tables. He's driving out animals. He's not judging just the religious elites who were stealing. He, he's also driving out those who were trying to offer sacrifices. He, he shuts the whole system down and tries to get everybody out of the temple because they weren't using it the right way. So, so the, the robbers being the people who, if we were to use Jeremiah's wordings, are the those who are stealing, those who are murdering, those who are who's committing adultery or swearing yep. falsely or making offerings to other gods. Yep. It's the ones whose hearts are far from him, yeah. yet they go into the temple as if their hearts are so near. Correct. Correct. Okay. And so because of this, then, you see two different reactions coming back to, to Mark chapter 11. So Jesus does this. How do people respond? Look at verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. So... The, the religious powerful sees what Jesus does, and it, it just ups the ante of sealing Jesus' fate. This is now going to continue to set in motion uh, the events where, where uh, Christ's trial and unjust crucifixion, his unjust trial, that they're, they're now wanting to figure out how to destroy him because sure. all the crowds were astonished at their teaching. So they were fearful because not everybody hated Jesus for what he does. The crowds now... Are astonished. So what's taking place here? Uh, why these two different reactions? I think the Gospel of Matthew now helps us understand this a little bit easier because uh, Matthew kind of takes this verse and slows down, zooms in, blows up the big picture for us. I want to read a few verses in Matthew chapter 21. 
So this is right after the same exact statement that my house shall be called a house of prayer and you make it a den of robbers. That's in verse 13. In Matthew 21, 14, here's what happens. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and babies, you have prepared praise. There's just this, uh, again, the two reactions, the two different responses that when Jesus comes and he flips these tables and he shuts down the system, he doesn't just turn and run back out of the temple, he stays. And what happens? The blind and the lame come to him and they're healed. Right. Uh, the, the, the children are crying out, Hosanna to the, to the son of David. There's this praise taking place. And, and you realize what's happening here is Jesus is instituting something new. Um, the, the lime and the blame, the, 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 the blind lame? and the lame. Yes, you know what I'm trying to say better right. than I can with the tongue twister. The blind and the lame ordinarily couldn't get close to Jesus in right. the temple, couldn't get close to God's presence in the temple. They, 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 there was a restriction, and now with Jesus coming, they, they could come and find healing. And this would have had definite messianic prophecy, promise fulfillment in the sense of uh, seeing God do these miraculous things for the blind and the lame, those who were ordinarily far off, those who were restricted, and, and, and God is now bringing them close in the mm. person of Jesus. Uh, and so on the one hand, his teaching is very, very popular. Right. Jesus comes and he's upset because the, the, the Jewish system and the leaders had so uh, misapplied and they were misusing mm -hmm. the temple system. And yet here the religious leaders in Matthew, you see that they're... they're they're indignant at Jesus because he's getting it right and he's actually showing to them something new. So it's, it's very interesting to see these two different responses. Right, and I, and I love that. Obviously, this is all happening, right? And again, it's happening in a place of worship. Yep. So this is a worship setting. Yeah. It's in the court of, the, of all nations or the Gentiles uh, of where worship is supposed to be taking place. And you've got these uh, the scribes and the Pharisees looking on whose hearts are so far from worship. Yeah. They have no idea. Right. Um, what is happening at all. Um, yet you see those who truly want to worship him come and yeah. those who actually were on the fringe of society, right? The blind or the right. lame. Right. I'm sure others were in there that are just fringe people who yeah. uh, meant nothing, at least to the Pharisees right. and to most of society. And, and Jesus is saying, at least in Matthew's gospel, the way it comes, it comes right on the heels. He doesn't just come in there go and overturn tables and say, you guys are bad, I'm out, and leaves within 15 yep. minutes. That's not what happens. Yep. He sits there, he does all that, and Matthew's gospel says, now let's slow it down. What happens after this? Then the lame, the blind, they come in, and now you're seeing hearts who truly have been um, at a distance, now want to draw near. Now you're seeing actual worship come. How do I know that? Because he goes, and what do they say in, verse, in Matthew, in verse 15, that when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he had did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna, mm -hmm. save us. Yeah. To the son of David, they were indignant, and they said to him, do you hear what, uh, what these are saying? Do you hear what they're saying? They're giving praises Worship, actual worship, authentic worship. And Jesus said to them, yes, um, have you not read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. Yeah. In a place of worship, 
um, where they actually are going to the, ho the holy of holies yep. in Christ, okay, you're actually seeing authentic worship being done in the courts of the Gentiles. And the yep. Pharisees and the scribes, well, they can't stand it right. because that praise is not going to them. Yep. Yeah. A absolutely. And I think that's why when you understand the reaction of how angry the, the religious elites were getting, that, that helps you understand what's going on in this passage. Uh, and why you get the varied responses from the people, where on the one hand it was increasing Jesus' popularity, on the other hand it was, it was enraging the religious elites. Um, all of this is kind of pointing to the reality that Jesus was not coming just to make a few tweaks to the temple system. Um, your Bible probably has a heading similar to mine in Mark chapter 11, Jesus cleanses the temple. I understand what's being said there. It's a helpful uh, um, heading, but on the one hand, it can almost make us miss what's taking place. Jesus wasn't just coming to cleanse the temple and say, hey, I'm just gonna kinda uh, clean up a couple of things and get this back on the right track. Some dirty worship spots. Yeah, something. yeah, yeah. It wasn't just a few tweaks here and we're back on the right track. Jesus was coming to reorder the temple. He was rewriting the rules. He was shutting down the old way and instituting something completely new. We see that in the sense of the blind and the lame coming to him and being healed in Matthew. We see that Jesus is coming and saying, you have misunderstood everything. And remember, we are just days away from his Passover crucifixion where he would be the once for all eternal sacrifice that would do away with the need for a priest to stand in our place and daily offer sacrifices. Mm -hmm. What Jesus instituted on Monday by flipping over the temples and causing a temporary disruption of this marketplace, um, he, he, he finalized on, at his crucifixion when God the Father upon his death tore the temple veil, the curtain that separated people from God's presence mm -hmm. from top to bottom, tore it in two. And, and that's kind of the final act. If flipping over the tables were the beginning, uh, <laughs> then the tearing of the temple was kind of the exclamation. It was the final stamp that it was done. I guess you could say the exclamation point in, in Mark chapter 13, Jesus prophesied that, that, that no stone would be left upon uh, the other, that there was a destruction coming that we know was carried out by the Romans in AD 70, where even the temple itself was physically destroyed. Jesus came to say, hey, now, now my life, I myself will be that temple and provide the sacrifice that will cover sins once for all. There's a quote that I want to read for you by G.K. Beale. He's quoting D.A. Carson, so we put this together and Here's what he says, Jesus' point is that the temple must be replaced because it was not fulfilling its God-ordained role as witness to the nations, but had become like the first temple, the premier symbol of a superstitious belief that God would protect and rally his people, irrespective of their conformity to his will. Mm. That's... It's pretty amazing when you, when you think about that, yeah. just all the, the rituals that certainly had gone astray. They were all supposed to kind of point toward yeah. their need for, for Christ, a permanent yeah. uh, solution for, their, um, for them being at a, either from Gentiles being really at a distance right. or the Jews only being you know, the high priest mediating that for yeah. them, even with sacrifices, and yet he comes in. And this, this is all pointing toward what's going to happen here yeah. in a matter of actual days. Yeah. Um, it's pretty amazing. So... Okay, well, that's, that's a lot. There's, there's a lot to unpack in there. It's certainly some of the things that as I was studying this um, were different than what I had 
uh, thought, at least in, in my, well. my upbringing uh, in regard to cleansing the temple. I certainly would have, um, if you would have asked me, you know, a couple weeks ago, maybe even a couple months ago, certainly, um, I would have thought, well, yeah, because they were charging them. They were, they, were, they were charging them too much for sacrifices. He was mad at that. They were extorting all of these um, poor Gentiles or the outcasts of society. Um, even Jewish outcasts yeah. at, at that point. So um, that's what I would have thought. So working through this, this has been really, really helpful for me. So if, if we were to look to think about application, you know, we don't, you know, we don't today, obviously, some of this is very difficult. We don't have a large temple. Right. Um, certainly, but this temple was ginormous. It would have engulfed many a football field yep. just in and of itself. Yep. That's how big it was uh, and the heights of it and, and such. So Thinking today, question of application, um, if the Jews were approaching God wrongly, in, in essence, they were replacing their comfort in the king with a comfort in the temple, irrespective of their conduct, yep. they didn't care about their conduct, they just wanted to be in this yep. place called the temple, this building, what does um, it mean in terms of our personal relationship with God and, and where we find our comfort? Well, I, I think it, it reminds us, it should remind us, it should strike every person who calls themselves a Christian, every person who professes faith in Jesus Christ, it should cause us to go back and reevaluate on what basis, where is my trust in the fact that I have a relationship with God? Um, why is it that I think I'm allowed to draw near and that God draws near to me? If that faith and assurance is on anything other than the gospel, Christ's sacrificial death in our place for the forgiveness of sins, whereby in faith and repentance we, we trust Christ's finished work on the cross for our justification. Um, if we place our faith and trust and assurance in anything other than that, then, then we are in danger of, of robbing God and trying to use some religious crutch that, that gives us hope and assurance of being brought near to him. So, so he, hear this. It, it, if you call yourself a Christian or believe that you uh, are a follower of God, is your trust firmly in the gospel, in what Christ has accomplished for you? That, that is the only foundation of why we're allowed to draw near to God. It's, not, it's none of the religious traditions or things associated with that. Now, I happen to be somebody that there, there are certain traditions, certain patterns, certain rituals that I love and, and take comfort in. That's not wrong. That cannot be the grounding and assurance of my salvation in Jesus Christ. So if you're looking at the fact that you come to church on Sundays, uh, whether that's every single week or whether that's, hey, at least I get there once a month. If you're looking to your church membership, if you're looking to the fact that at one point you professed faith in Christ, even though there's no fruit out of that profession. Mm. Uh, if you're looking to the fact that you do good deeds, that, that somehow God will look at these things and surely you must be close to him. Um, these cannot be the assurance or the fruit or the confidence of why we get to draw near to God. It's only through the gospel. And when we misunderstand that, when we, when we begin to put other things in what should only be Christ's work on the cross for us, well, then we're in danger of robbing God. We're in danger of trying to get the things of God without a personal relationship with God. So that would be certainly one of the ways that it applies to us in terms of our relationship with God. Um, 
But what, then, you know, that would be the right sandwich between what his judgment, what he thinks that looks like, the fig tree. You're, yeah. you're something that's not bearing fruit as Correct. a person. And so what does he do to that? He curses it. Correct. Right? So that's what he looks at that. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but then I also want us to think, okay, so what application is there for us? Um, if that's true, if we truly are trusting in God for salvation, how will that look in our lives when we come and gather at the church? Now, as you already mentioned, Kevin, there's differences here, right? In the Old Testament, uh, you very much were tied to brick and mortar temple for the presence of God. And now in the New Testament, it's not this, it's not this building that ties us to the presence of God. It's when the people of God gather. There is a special gathering there when the people of God gather in the presence of God. But when we come to church, what is it that, that this passage has lessons for us? We, we know it's sometimes applied wrongly in the sense of, um, well, church at Christmas time, we, we put a, uh, a book out there for sale a, uh, leading up to the days of Christmas. It was a devotional. We sold it to you for, I think, $4 a copy. Is that wrong? According to this passage, that the church should not be involved in selling anything. Well, I don't think so when you understand it rightly. No more bake sales. <laughs> Correct. Uh, but what would be some helpful applications as we think about the church gathering from this passage? Right. So I, I think that, as you said, we, we don't come into a building like the temple in that sense, right? Uh, that um, as, as a people of God, right, we represent the church. It's the gathering of people that God is pleased with when we gather around the gospel, proclaim his, uh, his goodness, his sacrifice for us. Uh, that's what we celebrate, his life, death, resurrection, and, and ascension. I think that as we come into a time of worship, we happen at Shawnee Baptist when we do physically gather. We gather at 10 o'clock, right, on a yep. Sunday morning. Um, what do we do with that? Do we actually put that as a priority in our lives on our Sunday morning? It's not just do I show up on Sunday, okay? Because I think that some of us can show up on Sunday and I think that we feel good about that. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not wrong to feel good about that. You've committed, you have a discipline in doing that. Um, but when you're here, when, you, when you're here and when you walk through these doors, which again, the doors are not magical. This building yeah. is not magical in any way. There's no special sprinkling of dust as you walk through this building doors. Um, or that we shouldn't have a dent in the door or a smudge on a window or whatever. That's not the point. The point is when you walk through the doors, you realize now this is a place where the people of God gather. Okay, And so as you do that, do you, um, do you understand that you're part of a body of Christ that is here to gather for, for the express intent yeah. of lift, lifting up the name of Jesus Christ, yeah. of being a person who um, echoes or, or resonates um, that which the gospel has done something in your heart, with others side by side. Um, when we come and we do this thing called call to worship, right? We've never talked about the structure of our worship. Yeah. Um, but when we come and do the call to worship, are you somebody who's like, ah, it's coming. I'll get there in a couple minutes. Yeah. Or you're like, wait a second. Um, uh, we're being called to worship right yeah. now. That means we're, we're, we should be coming in. Our attention should be, wait a second. I, I hear something. Yeah. And similar to like the shafar back in, you know, in the days yeah. of the Old Testament, we take note of that, that sound. Yeah. We take note of the fact that we're starting to gather because this is a time where we, in unity, want to proclaim God's goodness. And we do that by a call to worship. 
come in, put our voices together. Now, our worship is the entire service. We happen to do it through scripture reading, through prayer, through song, and through the proclamation uh, of the gospel through the scriptures, right? So I think that um, when we come to church, that it's not necessarily about um, the fact that I'll get in there, I'll get in there for the good part when the sermon's preached. No, um, get in there with called worship. That's when we start our time as a body of Christ, as a gathering to worship God. And I think that if we start to let other things detract from that, whatever, if it's detracting from the entire day, meaning you just don't go, or if you're in service and you casually are about a pew or about talking to people or getting in here eventually after the call to worship, at least within five minutes, that's pretty good, right? I don't know. Where is your heart in regard to our gathering? I think that God wants to say, hey, the time that you've set aside to worship, very much like there are places in the temple where we're set aside so that God purely got your... Um, your undivided attention where you offered your heart to him through sacrifices. We too are living sacrifices, as Romans yeah. talks about, 12, um, that we offer as a body um, our lives to him. And that's yeah. through all of these means that we have on a Sunday morning. Call to worship, the music uh, and song, and the, in the preaching of the gospel, the praying before the Lord and the gathering of the body. We need to set that up as high priority. It yeah. will reflect um, the way in which we walk in here, either with casualness or seriousness in the sense that your intent is not that you don't smile, but that you care about the right. people because they're gathered around the gospel and you're adding your voice to that. Yep. That's important. And I think that we can take that from here. When we walk through, if you will, these courts, this time, this place that we're gathering with the people, uh, do, we, do we consider that something serious yep. you know, yep. on a Sunday morning? Uh, I, I think those are some good points. Uh, I think another one that I would make, uh, another application of this, you know, it, just as you rightly mentioned, not only when we come into the gathering, you know, are we getting here on time? Are we distracting others? Another one I'd throw in, are, are we up so late on Saturday night that we can't stay awake through what we're gathering on Sunday morning? Um, let me throw in one more that not, not just the gathering in here, but, but are we actually making it into the gathering? This is something that is interesting to me in every church I've been in. I've seen there are a few people that I'm not just saying occasionally. We know that we realize that in the way the church is set up, there's many people that have to serve in various ministries, in children's ministries and things that even allow everybody else to gather. But in every church I've been in, there's a handful of people that for whatever reason, they are very faithful to the body on Sunday, excuse me, to the building on Sunday morning. Um, rarely do they miss uh, being in the building on Sunday morning, but for whatever reason, the normal ordinary pattern is that they're not in the gathering because they have made themselves so busy or so occupied with other ministries. And I, I just don't think that's the most helpful or healthy way in the long run to, to treat the people of God gathering in the presence of God. Uh, and I, I would encourage you, yes, we need people who are willing to skip the Sunday morning gathering to be involved in some of the children's ministries, but don't make that the normal, ordinary. Right. That should be the exception. It shouldn't be the norm right. uh, because we want to be gathering together as the people of God. We don't want to just use church for whatever superstitious, superficial um, reasons that make us feel good about our relationship with God and miss the actual reason of why the people of God were supposed to gather in the presence of God because then we're in danger of messing up the same thing that the Jews were messing up and Jesus came in and had to shut the system down and say you've completely missed the point right we don't want to do that as the New Testament people of God yeah and so we're here we are right the 
we're about to come up to Passover next yeah. week, right? And, and specifically as they celebrate that in Scripture. But for us, it's Easter. It's the life, death, and resurrection. Yeah. It's the culmination of what we celebrate. Um, like in this time of worship, are we preparing our hearts? Yeah. Every Sunday morning, I think we should prepare our hearts because we celebrate that same, yeah. that resurrection. So I think that in this time and then this next week and in these weird circumstances, right? Yeah. Are our hearts still being prepared? Are we yeah. still actively engaging Scripture and are, are our hearts truly... Uh, being prepared for worship as a living sacrifice unto God. Um, it will make that much, uh, it will make our gathering when we physically do again, yeah. that much more heightened. I, I, I very much, <laughs> more than you understand, look forward to when we gather together again as a body in this building right now so that, um, that we all with our voices can see each other and encourage each other in the gospel work and praise the name of Jesus. Absolutely. Uh... Well, Kevin, I'll ask you to close us in prayer. Uh, with that, we'll be done. But church, be encouraged. Um, know that there's a God who loves us. He's drawing near to us. In, as we go through this week in particular, uh, I will miss gathering with the body on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. But know this. Uh, the resurrection hasn't been canceled. The empty tomb hasn't been quarantined. Every Sunday that the church gathers, we, we gather to celebrate the empty tomb and to celebrate the resurrection. And so may God work in your hearts as we go through these days in a special way, reflecting on the events of Passion Week, on Christ sacrificing his life for us, and find encouragement even this week as we ref give extra reflection on these events. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for being so good to us in that you sent your Son, uh, that he prepared and paved the way for us. Father, I pray that our hearts would understand that, and by your Spirit, that we would grasp that. Mm. And in turn, we would put our faith in the, the work, the complete work that Jesus has done. Lord, in this week, may we think um, even more intently upon what you've done for us, thanking you and praising you for the pathway that you paved because we were inept to do it. And so, Father, um, we look to give you glory this day. We look to give you glory in our households and our family, and we look to be a light unto the nations that they would know that they too can come and profess Christ as Savior and trust in the work of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.